Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 583 with Benjamin Seabury. This person that you're working with, not who's working for you, is as good as you, is equal to you, and should be treated with the utmost respect. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash Stoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash Unstoppable, And when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Benjamin Seabury. My man, Benjamin, are you feeling unstoppable today? Always, every single day, Eric. Ready to go. Yes, that is what we like to hear. So a retired semi-pro football player, Ben Seabury, has been managing and owning food and beverage operations for over a decade. He scaled a cupcake concept, served as executive chef, GM, director of operations, and founder. Seabury's current title is president of the 1100 Group. The 1100 Group consists of four unique concepts, event management, catering, and a consulting division. On top of all this, Ben also owns Wheelhouse construction a commercial construction company specializing in restaurants and commercial kitchens man you've got a lot going on i cannot wait to dive into your story but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us you got it so my favorite quote comes from excuse me john a shed an author and professor and it is a ship in harbor is safe but that is not what ships are built for beautiful i have that i have that stenciled above my office door. So how does that resonate with you? What does that communicate to you specifically? What it, what it communicates to me is calculated risk and also utilization and purpose. You know, a boat always has the risk it's going to sink, but a boat is meant to travel the seas. A boat's meant to carry people. It's 
it has a purpose. And so for me to develop a company and not put it to its full purpose and not take those calculated risks that it's meant to, uh, it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem fit. And so this, this quote just reminds me every single day when I walk in my office, I need to make sure my ship is sailing. I need to make sure that my companies are out doing what they can do and what they're meant to do. So you're, you're making me have to ask this question. What do you think the full purpose of a company is? Oh, well, it depends on the company, I guess for capitalistic companies, you know, for-profit companies, I would say the purpose at the end of the day is to make profit. And beyond that, there's an entire spectrum of, you know, your, your moral responsibility, the ability to provide work for, for your employees, um, be a contributor to society. Um, but then even on top of that, there's a more philosophical aspect as well, which is to create something special that is long lasting. that helps change future generations as well. Something that maybe shapes the, you know, the energy of the universe rather than just the money or the day-to-day work. Ben Seabury breaking out the big guns early on. I'm liking this interview already, man. A uh, great way to get this thing started. So, uh, early days, you were a semi-pro football player, but I'm sure you didn't transition straight into being a semi-pro football player to managing and operating restaurants. There must have been some kind of middle ground there. So how did that transition happen? Well, football is the afterthought, believe it or not. Football okay. was something I played in high school and was decent at it. You know, not good enough to get a scholarship and not good enough to definitely not good enough to play in the, in the pros. But uh, in my 30s, I realized that I had started to you know, started to actually accomplish some of my challenges I put in my professional life, but I hadn't really dug deep. I hadn't tapped into that center of my brain that made me have to fight and suffer and really understand a challenge at full mind and body. And so I decided to play football at a very competitive high level. This is full pads, full contact, ex pros, off season pros, incoming pros. And I uh, did it at 35 was one of the oldest players in the league when I started Damn. And played played every single snap. I was an offensive center. Started. I was going to guess days. offensive center, man. I was going to ask if I could guess. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Keep going. And uh, played played every single snap and made the all star team. Um, and then here at age forty, I just turned forty. I decided to challenge myself again. So I'm coming out of retirement. And uh, practices started last week. First games are in February. Wow, man. Um, totally did not see that coming. I just assumed you kind of maybe transitioned after college. Uh, maybe we're trying to make it into the pros. Didn't pan out. Got into hospitality, but totally not what I was expecting. So when did you get into food and beverage? Was that like straight out of high school, college? Like, how did you get into the industry? You know, so I was actually grew up in a construction family okay. and understood construction and moved out to Colorado to go work a construction job right after high school. I didn't go to college. And moved out to Denver, Colorado, was working some construction, decided that I wanted some aspect of a college experience and decided to move to Boulder, Colorado, uh, not to, again, not to attend class, but just to party. And how old are you and now at this point? I'm 40, just turned no. 40. At this point in your story, how old are you? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm uh, 19. Okay. Got you. 19 in Colorado, decided to move to Boulder to party and That's start working. a great at a, place to do it. It is really. It <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have picked a better yeah. town. And I uh, started working at a pizza place that's no longer there, 17th and Arapaho in Boulder, called Jolino's Pizzeria. And a really high-level pizzeria, you know, they put a lot of effort into the dough and the sauce. and The meat was sliced fresh, and the sausage was sliced fresh, the big Hobart mixers. And 
Um, the dough was tossed by hand and they had a brie and wild mushroom pizza back in, what is this, 1999, way ahead of its time. Um, unfortunately, it's no longer there. It closed a few years ago. But I started working there and basically enjoying the college lifestyle without going to class and working in a pizza shop. And that was my first entrance into that. I never thought that's what I would do. I thought I would go back to college, maybe do political science, become a lawyer, all these dreams that uh, I had. And then, of course, as many restaurateurs, we find ourselves a few years later really good at what we're doing and decide to pursue it as a career. So at what point did you really say, like, this is going to be my career? Like, this is what I'm good at. This is what I want to do. <laughs> you mean how long did I deny that it was going to be my career? Sure. <laughs> you can feel oh, that question any way you'd like. Yeah, I think that you know, throughout my 20s, I really didn't think I would be in the restaurant industry. I mean, I, I went from server. I went to AGM, and I was a lead trainer for big corporate restaurant, Hard Rock Cafe. And um, I still at that point didn't think it would be my career. I figured that I would go into some other some other avenue, go down some other avenue. And then about, I'd say 29 years old, I realized here I am a general manager of a restaurant. I make decent money. I'm living in San Francisco. I've got a great life. I'm going to go all in. And that's really when it started to change for me. And I really started to take the industry seriously. And I realized how much I'd learned over the last decade as well. So when you were 29, uh, was this uh, 2008 when you were at Kara's Cupcakes or is this prior to that? Uh, let's see, 29, I, what year was that? Wow, that's 11, 11 years, years ago. years ago, year 40 What is that, 2008? Yeah, that's me. Uh, not at Karis Cupcakes then. I wasn't at Karis Cupcakes until almost 2000, I guess 2009, 2008, 2009. I mean, we, we got to, um, I, I try to dive in a little bit during the come up to, to find out if there are any key mentors in your 20s, somebody who really influenced you and kind of formed who you are today. Also, we got to talk about the Hard Rock Cafe and what being in, in that company great organization taught you as well it really did that's a that's that really laid the foundation for everything i do day in day out with our current operations it was really that's college that was my college was hard rock and then i worked for gordon Beers for quite some time as well um during that era but in my 20s i had three mentors that i really that really pointed me in the right direction and two of them are partners and they own a concept called Pluto's based out of San Francisco. They're Northern California salad and sandwich concept. They're one of the first, if not the first to really do the build your own salad model. You know, it's so popular nowadays you walk in, there's mixed greens and all these other, you know, West coast chains, at least that you walk in, you pick your seven toppings, you get your lettuce, you get your protein on top 12 bucks. You're out the door with a salad. These guys were the first to think of that. They were Cornell graduates uh, their names are Jerry Bugis and Lewis Kimball. I worked for them for quite some years as a general manager of their flagship operation in San Francisco in the Marina District. And the two of them taught me what it is to be a business owner. I got handed a budget and I got handed a P&L. I got handed a decent POS system. And they had some patience. They had a little bit of guidance, but they made me own that business. They made me run that business. They made me look at every single metric, every single marker. And... I loved him and hated it for him at the same time. Uh, a lot of pressure. <laughs> but looking back, I mean, that, again, it's, it's, it's that class in college I never took. It was those few years working for them. Those are really two people I got to credit a lot of my success with. And then the third person would be uh, the co-owner of Kara's Cupcakes, Kara's husband, Michael Lind, uh, old airplane pilot, uh, retired uh, 
United International Airline Pilot and talk about organized, talk about checklists, talk about contingencies. I mean, just being an airplane pilot and being an airline pilot overseas, you know, big, big, long trips with big 747s, um, the amount of detail that he put into his operation and the checklists and making sure that everybody was accountable for every aspect of their job was just, it's uncanny. It's the reason why they're successful and the cupcakes are great. So not everybody knows this about me, but I was a commercial pilot before starting this podcast. And oh, wow. it, there are so many similarities that cross over between those two fields uh, of just communication, a uh, closed loop communication, CRM, right? Uh, crew resource management is what that stands for. And it's how to communicate, how to challenge people in a way that's not threatening, but also supports the the crew. Uh, there's so many lessons. I, I've, I've been wanting to do like a blog or a whole episode dedicated to how those two lives have crossed over. Uh, but Anyway, let's let's dial back. You, you listed these three these three mentors. I want to go deeper. Um, you kind of alluded to some of the lessons and how they how they influenced you and what you learned from them. But can you maybe take from the two first mentors that were at the sandwich shop, like one key pivotal moment for you that kind of like was a game changer in how they influenced you? Ooh, we talk about when they fired me. Um, yeah, let's get but, there. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, really. <laughs> I think one of the key moments for me was when I realized that I had to work this restaurant as an owner operator and I was part of the staff. I was part of the labor. So when I had to control my metric, if I had to cut down my hourly labor, I would have to fill in that extra few hours. It was truly the way that they shaped that entire budget was based around myself working on the line as a cook, as a cashier, as a busboy, whatever role I needed to do in order to fill the shoes to make sure that my labor came in budget. And as everyone knows, labor is the killer. I mean, especially in the state of California, wages are, are very, very high. And it really taught me that, you know, the, the harder I bust my balls or my ass, excuse my language. And uh, people have said far uh, worse on the show and I'm not going to capture good, you. Good. So let it go. Let it All right, good. Um, <laughs> you know, the harder I bust my ass, the the better my my end result will be and they really taught me how to work a working role as an owner operator and i still take that to heart today i mean my life my day-to-day now is much much different but i dig in i wake up early every morning and i go to work and i'm constantly looking for the ways that i can work harder in order to save myself make my companies make my companies more money etc that's really what they taught me the most and they taught me they taught me how to control labor and uh and, and how to work as an operator, how to work as an owner. I'm going to pull back one more layer here. Um, yeah. One nugget about how to control labor. Uh, you kind of mentioned the getting that person in there. Who's like the, the utility player that can do whatever needs to be done in whatever moment. But what other nugget can you give us before moving on? Well, on the spot. Yeah, no, it's fine. You know, for, for me, one of the ways that, that I really like to control labor and one of the ways I did at Pluto's for sure was it was all in scheduling and using your data. So we go back and look at all of our history and we would just, it's a boring answer, but it's the truth. You have to go back and analyze the hourly sales data and you can look at every Wednesday or every, every Monday for the last six weeks. And then you go look at last year's same Monday last year and figure out what your sales per average are and build your schedule around that. So that people's expectations are that I'm working a five hour day today. I'm not going to get scheduled for an eight and get cut down to five. Um, and that was, that's still what I used to say. I just, you know, it's all, all research, all data, stuff like that. 
Okay. What technology were you using back then to do it? Was it just printed oh, sheets and Excel spreadsheet yeah. <laughs> and a calculator? What are you using now? Yeah. I'm curious. How have you set up that game? Well, we are very well integrated with Revel. Um, and so we use scheduling software, partnered up with Revel. Um, and we basically pull our reports. Our general managers utilize the Revel reports. And from there, they create their schedule. I think they get a recommended schedule. To be honest with you, I'm a little out of the out of that game. I should probably dial that more in. But, I hear you. Uh, yeah, uh, a little bit higher of a level um, of operation. Yeah. It, but I mean, that's one of the that's a key lesson right there. Uh, you hire people to work on the day to day, so you can work on more like you said, higher level things. We didn't. We haven't touched on why they fired you though. Where does that come into the story? <laughs> well, you know, I guess there's the the pro and the con of having your general manager be trained and act like an owner because after a few years i thought i was the owner uh, <laughs> i just got too i just got too big for my britches i mean plain and simple i started calling the shots telling them how it should be done um really you're not blatant disrespect but you know i it was my shop i was responsible for every aspect of it i bled with it i cried with it i you know cheered with it so- and i wasn't gonna have them come in and tell me what to do and after a certain amount of time so you, knowing what you know now, with the perspective you have now, you realize that you're out of place. Um, wh- I mean, what were the key lessons? You, you told us what you did, but what did you learn from that experience and how are you different now because of it? I think the I learned the aspect of high road and making sure that when you break or sever a relationship, especially in business, it is so important to take the high road and to make sure that when your time is done, your time is done. There's no need to burn the other guy's candle and to throw him under the bus and to, you know, toss mud at each other, exit gracefully, exit on a professional level. And that's something that maybe I didn't do there. And maybe they didn't do either. Uh, that, I guess this is a, that's, that's the, that's the biggest thing I've taken, taken from that, uh, from that experience was making sure you leave with grace. And are you still in communication with these guys today? You know, every once in a while I run into them, um, either in one of their shops or at uh, California national restaurant convention, I believe, or the restaurant association. The last time I ran into them, I see them from time to time. Um, and again, now it's handshakes and, and everyone's proud of each other and nice. their concept has taken off and I'm successful. And, and so all things end well, but well, I'm glad uh, you're yeah. able to smooth that out. So, I mean, wh- who were the other key mentors in your life? Or when was the next transitional um, evolutionary point for you in your career? So I went to work after that for a company called Kara's Cupcakes out of San Francisco and worked with Michael Lynn, the airplane pilot, and his wife, Kara Lind, a fantastic cupcake concept that thrives in the Bay Area here, and helped them scale up and add a bunch of units. And I really missed the ownership aspect of being a unit. So I went to work and formed a partnership with a gentleman named Bob Cantor. And Bob Cantor was an owner and founder of an amazing restaurant that still exists in San Francisco called Memphis Minnie's barbecue joint. Um, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about barbecue. I didn't know anything about cooking at this point. I worked for a salad shop, sandwich shop, hard rock cafe, cupcake bakery. And I go into this barbecue joint and it was two years of, I got my PhD in barbecue. I learned how to cook. I learned French cooking techniques from this man. I learned how food should be done and how you need to make sure you're executing at the highest level possible at all times. And it doesn't matter if you're the guy making the top of the salt shaker that sits on the table, or if you're the guy doing the duck confit, it needs to be done at a high level 
and you'll be successful. So he taught you standards, the power of high standards. He taught me more than standards. He taught me respect for myself, respect for the business, respect for your customers, respect for your employees. He taught me respect. He taught me standards. He taught me, I mean, you know, he taught me how to be an adult in this industry. And I think that, and how to be responsible in this industry. And that is this day. We got to go deeper. You can't just say he taught you about respect. So what did he teach you about respect? What was your concept of respect before he met you? And what, in what way did he change your perspective on respect? Well, let's talk about employees to start off. So before, before I worked with Bob, an employee was a tool for me, right? It was a number. It was a, it was a dollar that was coming out of my budget and there was no relationship. There was no investment into that employee. And Bob taught me through these employees he had had working for him for 13 years, 15 years, families of people that had come to work for, for, for Bob, that this is so much more than just a tool. It is so much more than just a number. This person that you're working with, not who's working for you is as good as you is equal to you and should be treated with the utmost respect. They need to be, you need to be considerate of their time. You've considerate of your actions and the way that you speak around them and the way that you conduct yourself. You have to be um, just respectful. I mean, that's, he taught me through respect of employees. You start there and that feeds the rest of the industry and feeds the rest of the unit or the rest of the, the company at that point. I kind of want to compound off that real quick, Ben, because I think yeah. you said as equal as you, and even being willing to say that this person may exceed me in certain places and recognizing where this person may exceed you in certain places and then putting them in that role and saying, you know, you, you are more naturally inclined to this thing than I am. Why don't you teach me something? Everybody has their genius. It's a matter of figuring it out. Right. You know, I agree with that on a talent level, yes. But on a human level is what I'm talking about. He taught me that you know, just because you're the boss doesn't make you the boss. You're not a boss of another human being. These people deserve the just baseline human respect as they should give you. And you should require that and they should require that of you. And then, of course, with the talent, I mean, putting their aces in their places and appropriating, you know, appropriating your best employees where their best talents lie, well, that that's that's a non that any any successful business in the world applies that metric absolutely you also mentioned that he helped you respect yourself what did you mean by that you know i didn't care what i put in my body um you know i would eat um you know a steak sandwich it was probably commodity fed beef you know pumped up full of who knows what steroids and all types of stuff and uh you know basic white breads that were probably in, you know, definitely coming from Conagra or some you know, mainstream flour mill. And he really taught me the beauty of caring about what I put in my body and making sure just like what you're putting on the table is the best that you can do that what you're putting in the, in your body is the best that you can put. And I'll use my favorite example with him is that Bob Cantor is this, you know, he's a five, eight white guy, Big, huge mustache. He's a character. And everyone in San Francisco knew Bob Cantor. He passed away, unfortunately. But this guy loved barbecue. He was a barbecue restaurateur. And his favorite thing in the world was Japanese sake. And so he walked into his restaurant, which is this on Hate Street in San Francisco, iconic location, iconic restaurant. And you're getting some of the best barbecue you can find on the West Coast. And all of a sudden you look up and there's a sake selection. You look at the sake selection and it's the finest Daiginjos and the finest Junmais that you could ever find across the country or in, I mean, across the world. It's some of the finest sake in the world served 
at this little barbecue place just because he enjoyed it. It was the finest he could provide. And it taught me about, you know, making sure that I'm not drinking that rock gut whiskey or that rock gut wine, really appreciating stuff that's crafted and respecting myself and respecting my body enough to make sure that I'm feeding it with, you know, maybe sake is the wrong example, but, uh, you know, organic fruits and vegetables, grass fed meats, organic meats, stuff like that. So you were with him for two years. Uh, this is Big Pig Productions, I'm assuming. Yeah, Big Pig Productions, otherwise a DBA Memphis Minis Barbecue, gotcha. which is famous so, place, famous place in the city. So you're with him for two years. Uh, you exited in 2012. Did you exit more gracefully from this experience than the previous one? I did. Um, him and I parted ways, and he went. Well, he he went to retire in North Carolina and turned the keys to the kingdom over to me. And then that was when we parted ways, but he was still the owner. When I say parted ways, we were still working with each other. And he went scuba diving and actually died scuba diving. Mm. Um, And uh, that was the last time, uh, the last time I went in that restaurant. I uh, never looked back. Oh man. I'm sorry to hear that. It was a heartbreak. Yeah. Heartbreak. Imagine. Um, So a lot of people love that man. He was a good guy. Oh, man, it sounds like it. So let's kind of pedal away from that scenario. I don't need to go any deeper there. Uh, 2012 was when you opened your first business. But before we dive in, this is usually where I like to take a break to thank the sponsor going into your first uh, business, uh, restaurant business. So we'll be right back after thanking our sponsors. Hang around. You got it. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant's hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. All right, we're back. So correct me if I'm wrong. Was your first business uh, being the co-founder of uh, daily kitchen? It was. And so I left Memphis minis and I was in a rut. Um, Bob had passed and I find myself in San Francisco at this weird point in my life where, you know, I'm, I've committed to make this my career, but what next? I don't have the expertise to go be a fine dining manager or to, to go open fine dining restaurant to be in that world. I've committed myself to salads, sandwiches, cupcakes, and then barbecue. So San Francisco being a foodie town, I, my, my choices get really limited very quickly. And so I decided that I was going to start a consultancy and I would consult for people that wanted help running their restaurants, like restaurant rescue type of operation. And I uh, met a guy named Dylan Walker and Dylan wanted to actually launch a brand called plate in San Francisco. And he hired me to come on his consult. 
developing recipes and menu items. And we decided that he needed a commercial kitchen. And so together we signed a lease in Daly City, south of San Francisco, this big warehouse, and we built this commercial kitchen. And this commercial kitchen was just to feed this restaurant startup because the outlet, the retail outlet, the model was a bunch of small kind of kiosk style outlets and then one central commissary kitchen. Okay. And what happened was we opened that rest, we opened that commercial kitchen right when the food truck boom hit in San Francisco and the city of San Francisco, the, the health department of San Francisco County said, every food truck has to have a licensed commissary kitchen. So all of a sudden we went from all this extra space to a six month waiting list for rentals. Wow. And it took off from there. And then I took that consultancy I had started and started consulting for all of these food trucks that were coming into this commercial kitchen helping them launch their businesses mm. and business was great. What can well, I say? Was, a recipe uh, for success right there, getting that funnel of new businesses right into your lap. Uh, so I mean, what did you learn about commissaries? This is something that comes up. I don't know how I feel about commissaries. I think a lot of people think that, I mean, they're a good way if you, if you don't have a lot of initial capital to start, uh, it's a good way to, to get in. A lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of food trucks are in, are forced to use commissaries depending on where you are in the country. Uh, what were some of the big lessons there regarding commissaries? Well, I mean, I the lessons that I saw or the lessons I learned were from watching other people fail. Um, we have people here that have nothing but work ethic and, and, and drive, and they have a decent amount of capital, and they have a great idea. But here they are trying to launch either a food truck or a farmer's market or, or some other aspect of this commissary kitchen. And it just puts you in the hole. It's just not, to me, it was the, it was the wrong recipe. Um, Get specific. What was the wrong recipe? I want to be in the food business. The wrong recipe was that you're trying to, so take a food truck, for example, you know, these, the wrong recipe there is that you've got this vehicle that has an engine that can break down any minute. You've got three people that have to run it or else you have to sit in this cramped space and run it yourself. Plus you have to do all the prep work. Then you have to clean the truck. Then you have to pay for the waste. Then you have to rent the commissary kitchen. All of this for $300,000 a year in, year in sales. I mean, your profit margins are non-existent until you're able to scale up. I mean, really the magic number I saw hit with a great food truck concept called Senor Sisig out of San Francisco. Good friends, good people. At five trucks, they started to make money. And so for me, all that effort, all that energy you put towards this development could have been repurposed into a brick and mortar with real demographic research and a real application of a restaurant into a community that probably would have been a lot easier and had a lot, lot lower failure rate. Yeah. You know, I, I'm even suggesting people start with dinner parties. Uh Get proof of Better concept. Of course. Yeah, because there's no overhead there. You're, you're feeding family and friends and use that, like capture email, start capturing emails there, start developing the story there, and then start as small as you can with a brick and mortar. I think people get in trouble because they try to go too big too soon, but the, I don't know if, uh, and you can agree or disagree. What are your thoughts on that statement? Well, I agree. I think that dinner parties, pop-ups, these are all great ways to do it. These are not long-term commitments like a food truck where you're signing year lease on commissary kitchens, et cetera, et cetera. This, it's a much better route. And I do agree that you should start small. I mean, you look at our first pizza place in San Francisco, little star pizza, which was founded in 2005 and it's a hole in the wall. Um, my partner started that with a different, uh, another gentleman prior to, to, to me coming on the scene and it's, you know, 1400 square feet and it's tiny and it's really helped blossom and help grow this uh, huge empire. 
In this situation, the commissary worked really well for you, but it was kind of like a perfect storm where all these regulations came into play uh, that you didn't know were going to happen, and it kind of just worked out in your favor. But knowing what you know today uh, regarding commissaries, do you think your your concept would have worked of trying to supply a bunch of retail locations with food from one commissary? Would that have worked knowing what you know today, do you think? Yes, I think it would have worked fine if I'm talking about owning the commissary and supplying my own restaurants. If you're talking about a commissary that is a rental kitchen that other people use as their commissary, that's a slippery slope. And I think there's two different models there, two different business models, of which I've explored both. Um, Where we're at now with our current restaurants is if we opened up any more Bay Area locations, we would have to consider a commissary just to make sure we provide excellent consistency, especially in our dough, sauce, um, all that, all that special stuff that goes into that pizza. So as a rental, you know, as, as a, as a commissary owner, I would never go down that route again. I thought it was, uh, we got lucky. So what were the, the, the pitfalls? Um, I mean, you got lucky, but what were the issues that made you or wouldn't make you second guess it? Well, the failure rate of the tenants, I mean, you have a tenant and they signed a year lease, right? And it's a year commitment. It's not cheap. And they're all, you know, they're gangbusters. They're in that, they're in that kitchen 25, 30 hours a week, minimum, sometimes 50, 60, 70 hours a week for some of the big ones. And they're abusing your equipment. They're dirty. They're not cleaning up after themselves. They're working hard. I don't blame them. And then at the end of the day, all of a sudden their concert doesn't work and they bounce on the rent and they bounce with, you know, now you got to go into collections and you have to go try to recoup some of your investment. You got to fill their spot in the, commissary kitchen rental schedule, which is, it's just, you know, the maintenance and every little bit of it. I mean, you're talking about, you know, cooks and cooks abuse equipment as it is, but especially when it's not their own. Okay. All good reasons. So ultimately you're, you're working, uh, with plate in this commissary kitchen for two years or three years from 2012 to 2015. Uh, things sounded like they were going really well, why leave that model? I mean, if you're a consultant at this point, a lot of people transition to consulting after restaurant owning. Um, seemed like it was going well. Why go back into operations? So it all came out because I had a consultant inquiry, an inquiry for, for my services come up. To, well, I was doing a really interesting one, which is a, 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 probably another topic for you. We were doing Kratom beverages and cannabis beverages, which I know a lot about. Uh, I've done a lot of work in that space, but uh, which would be a good another podcast for you okay. another day. Um, but uh, through that friend who I was doing the kratom beverages with and the, the cannabis beverages with, he introduced me to somebody who had a burger joint that was failing, losing about fifteen grand a month. And at the time, I was really focused on business startup, business development. But I had done a lot of restaurant rescue back in, in you know early in my consultant consultant career. So I took on the job and. It was easy. I came in, I, I poked a few holes in, in a few things that were trend, you know, very, very evident and had that place at break even 30 days later. And, and that person was my current partner, John Gould. And John Gould owned Little Star Pizza. And Little Star Pizza was a, uh, is a very, very popular pizza restaurant in San Francisco. And um, it was started between him and a, a man named Brian Snursky. And they had what we can call a business divorce. They, they split ways. And John had taken two of the units, Brian had taken one of the units and John had gone on and tried to open up this other concept, which was a burger joint. It just wasn't working. 
So I came on and he said, you know, did a great job. I'd like to hire you another month. I said, great. You know my fee? He goes, your fee is too expensive. And I said, well, that's what the fee is. He said, why don't you work for me instead? And I said, I'm sorry. You know, I'm a, I, don't, I don't work for anybody and I, I won't work for anybody else again. That's one of the principles I've put in my life. And uh, so he said, great. Then come on as a partner. And here we are. All right. There you go. So uh, what was attractive for you about this partnership? Well, John is he's one of these these guys that has such an eye for the design and the aesthetic of of restaurant spaces that his restaurants are just stunning they're beautiful build outs and they're just pizza right and it was oh it's just pizza but wait a minute you're walking into this environment that feels like you could be in a really upscale modern you know san francisco manhattan style restaurant and you're eating some of the best pizza you've ever had in your life with an amazing award-winning bar program backing it the design of the concept is fantastic. And that always has had me excited from day one. And we've only improved upon that and gotten really, we've gotten a lot better with that in the last few years, especially. But on top of that, you know, John embodied a lot of the same lessons that my biggest, my biggest influence, Bob Cantor implored upon me, which was do what you're going to do to the best that you can do it. And when I say that our pizza is the best in the country, I'll put it up against anybody, Eric. And I know everyone's going to laugh and say, oh, yeah, everyone says they have the best pizza. This is the best pizza in the country. And it's John Gould's recipe. And you know, he's an art. He's an artist with that. There's, no one beats it. It's, yeah. it's deep dish. It's, it's Chicago-style deep dish and New York-style thin crust in California better than they do it in those towns, in my opinion. I'm sure I'll be trying it someday when I'm on the West Coast. But you're bringing up a, so. a huge point right now. Uh, and I'll say it a different way. It, it Don't go into business if you can't be number one and you you gotta be number one the the difference between uh number one and number two is something like three times more uh profitable i can't remember where i heard that but it's so important um what what about your so it sounds like he was more uh geared towards aesthetic uh vision design things like that you were more operations focused numbers focused uh culture what about the partnership how did you guys complement each other in other ways well, you just hit it on the nail, and that's to this day, that's exactly how we still operate. John is the vision behind it. John understands that you know we, we have an expansion plan in place that's going to take us to multiple states and then international as well, and that's his vision. He understands that, and when he designs a space, he walks in, and all of a sudden, he sees the colors on the wall and the chandeliers that are going to get hung, and he creates these beautiful spaces, and then we're developing a new crust. We're going to do a uh, Sicilian-style crust. And, He's working on that with our culinary director to help dial that in. These are all the, you know, the, like you said, the aesthetics that he handles. I run the business. I run the operations. I make sure that I make sure that sales go up, the profits go up. I make sure that everyone's happy. I run, we put in place a management group underneath us that handles the aspects of the restaurants. They run the, they run the day-to-day operations. So I manage the management group as well. Oh, and um, I'm loving this conversation. Yeah. I'm going to save some of my thoughts for the closing thoughts uh, when I'm summarizing yeah. today's conversation because I want to dive into your mind more. Uh, what are some of the key responsibilities or the key aspects of creating a management below you? Because uh, you guys have a really great framework that you've created around you. I mean, where were you like bef- when this partnership started? What did that that the the framework the org- the, how how did you guys like organize? What did that look like then, and what does it look like now? How did you build that? Well, you know, what it looked like then was us scrambling and working 80 hours a week and stressed out. And because of that, our culture suffered. Our people suffered. Our our restaurant suffered. Our food quality suffered. Everything suffered because we were spread too thin. And so what we did is we looked at 
are key elements. And I put it into essentially the, a triad. There's three, three aspects I pay great attention to. And that is the people, the product and the place. And so I have a person that we brought on. Well, actually she's been there longer than me. She started with John many years ago as a general manager. Her name is Susanna Blumenstock and she is top of her field. There's nobody better that I've ever worked with when it comes to culture and the people. Um, making sure that the restaurant employees understand that this company, no matter how small or big, truly, truly cares about its people. She conveys that message better than anybody and better than I ever could and better than John could. And so she became part of the management group and a partner in the management group. And she is our CPO, chief personnel officer. And that's her job. She's there to make sure the people are good. So what was her name again? Her name is Susanna Blumenstock. So Susanna, so basically you guys had the vision, the, 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 the eye for design, the numbers, the, the the management down, but you were still maybe weak in the culture side of things. The that's it, and you found your weakness. You found the the third leg to your tripod. That's right, and you know that third leg is so much better at that being that third leg than than John and I could ever be. That you know, like we talked about earlier, it's all about putting that right fit. And it's all about the people. We're only as good as Susanna is. We're only as good as the people that work believe or work for us or work with us are i was gonna save this to the end when i was going solo on my thought my final thoughts but i'm gonna share it now because i just have to i I believe i'm gonna make a statement i I don't think that you can compete today on a high level uh without partnerships without giving equity in your business to other people who want exactly what it is that you want because you can't be good at everything you cannot unless you're a freak and there are some freaks out there unless you're a freak you need to divide and conquer you need to stay in your lane and you need to attract onto yourself the best and only the best are going to work for you if they have equity in the business would you agree with that statement i i do agree with that and even though i've had to teach some of the people that work with me in these roles about this this kind of mindset I believe it so much that I'm willing to almost negotiate against myself in a sense. And so what we've done at the management group level is that my top, my culinary director, my VP of operations, CPO, even our business manager, uh, Terry Ann, who started with us as a server now have equity um, effective this year in our management group. And I did it for two reasons. One, exactly what you said. It helps make sure that we're all invested in the same purpose and it helps again, teach it helps it helps show respect to the people that are working with me and hopefully helps build their self-respect as well when they have that ownership mentality but more importantly and the reason why i did it and we didn't touch on this earlier is that one of the main reasons i didn't want to go into this industry is i didn't think it had a future for me when i was older because i always had this vision of me being a denny's general manager at age 70 years old and that comes from me seeing a denny's general manager at 70 years old and just having such empathy. Um, and so given ownership in a company to people that maybe started as a server or, you know, dishwasher in some cases or assistant general manager, it's our version of retirement. It's our version of security. It's our vision or our version of, of building a life. That's really important to me. And, and where exactly is that security coming from? Security coming from equity in the business and mm-hmm. the business, you know, hopefully translates into real estate holdings and hopefully, translates into equity of long lasting concepts and that's that i mean it's this is class a ownership too this is not this isn't this isn't take it and take it and sell it or i mean take it you only have it as long as you're working for us so you take it and run with it yeah and i think it's kind of uh 
I mean, I'm, I'm making assumptions now, uh, but 2018 is when he started Wheelhouse Construction. Uh, I mean, is this becoming something where you've you've built the team over the past three years, four years? Now you have this 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 vertical for opportunity. People, you know, people have opportunity coming to work for you, and now you have the construction element of your business. Is that kind of like? continuing to build assets, com- continuing to build security by investing is, is, is your moneymaker the actual uh, asset of the land of the building? Is that kind of the angle? No, it's another facet of it though. I mean, I okay. think, yeah, for us, the ownership of the land, the ability to do our own construction, the ability to develop and manage our own concepts are all ads, but you know, in reality, when it comes down to it, we are, I guess, you know, we're restaurateurs and that's our primary focus and our primary asset is our brand and is the restaurant. Okay. I kind of got off, sub, not off subject, but I kind of went into a rabbit hole because the original question was uh, what the original framework was like on how you scaled. And we started talking about Suzanne, the importance uh, yeah, of, yeah. and I got, I got so, way too excited. So uh, dialing back. So when you first came with, or when you formed the uh, 1100 group, it was you, John, uh, and then the third partner you brought on was Suzanne. Uh, you guys were operating the Star Pizza, and was it Boss Burger? Was that the the, the burger joint that you guys uh, turned around? That's correct. Okay, yeah. so uh, so you had two restaurants between the two of you, and then the three. Of no, you? that's no, that's at that point we have five. Okay, so uh, building our six. So when you came on and you partnered with John, it was just those two, correct? Uh, it was two plus he had started development on. Uh, another process, another project called Cafe Eugene, which is no longer with us. What happened May there? rest in peace. Oh, hard neighborhood, to, hard concept. <laughs> I don't mean to put you yeah, on the spot, but we learn a lot no, from I the just, things that don't work out, right? <clears throat> of course. And I'm, I'll tell you, there's a whole, there's a whole, whole other hour on the failures of last year in particular about the lessons it taught me. So I agree with that completely, Eric, that we're going to learn more from what we do wrong than what we do right sometimes. Um, you know, Cafe Eugene was a concept that um, was developed by somebody else and it had a great launch and they weren't paying attention to the costs. The food cost was approaching the mid forties. The labor cost was approaching the mid forties. All of a sudden you're looking at prime cost 80. Obviously you're going to be in the hole big time right out of the gate. And so there was courage there uh, between John and this other partner. This is something that John did without my involvement prior to me coming on. And the courage was there to help kind of feed the bank and, and help get through this time. But basically they weren't making the cuts and it ended up being its death blow. I mean, you can only, you can only self-finance a restaurant so long before cash flow has to step in. Yeah. Um, and profits so, have to take place. So that, uh, that lasted a year. Um, yeah, it was a one year and almost to the date uh, it closed. So, so far, we have identified uh, when you're scaling this business, you started looking at your strengths and weaknesses. You identified your strengths. You realized you were weak with the culture, the people side of things, HR, maybe you can call it. You brought on Suzanne. What were the other pivotal, transformative moments in your growth with the 1100 Group? For me, it was looking into our current operation and identifying those what we call farm talent. John and I refer to veterans and farm talent. And I wanted to find people that worked for us that had proven they liked the brand, had proven they were part of the family, that had that gusto and that had that ability to kind of step in and grow. Maybe had multi-unit manager you know, potential or maybe 
they had, you know, for example, Terry Ann Gordon, our business manager, office manager, it was, was a waitress and she was a waitress for 15 years and 10 of those were ours. Uh, you know, she was a waitress for us for 10. And, you know, she said she wanted to get off, get off her feet and not be a waitress anymore. So we looked at her as farm talent for 1100 group. And she's one of our strongest employees. She runs the day-to-day communications of the entire company for over 550 employees. Yeah. So uh, payroll, everything. I want to compound on some of the things you just share with us. You want, you were looking for people that were a part of the family. How did you know uh, that they were loyal to you, that they were part of the family? Well, I mean, tenure does tenure is one way to, to establish that, right? If someone's worked for you a certain amount of time, either they're, you know, foolish or if they don't like working there or they like working there and they really like working for you. And at that point that you've embraced them as family and they've embraced you. But getting beyond that, I use instinct and I am so instinct driven. It's, you know, sometimes a fault I would say, but I can look at an employee first week or two and I can tell you right now, if that person's going to be somebody who grows with us or if that person's going to have a career of a certain length and then move on. Um, it's all instinct. You know, I, I, I meet these people every day, new employees, and you shake their hand and every once in a while you just get that spark, Eric. Mm. And I don't know how to explain it. It's instinct. It's you know, our VP of operations. Yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's social and emotional intelligence. And it, it's something that's with, embedded in our DNA. We're tribal animals. We communicate on waves that we don't even understand to this day. But that's your gut feeling. And you got to trust it. And some people harp on gut feelings. They say, don't trust your gut. I mean, do trust your gut, but use facts and numbers to back it up, right? You, of you gotta, course. Yeah. Um, sorry, I think I cut you off. What were you saying? No, I was going to say, our VP of operations, Michael Petrilli is a great example of that. Here's a guy who bounced around as like a journeyman general manager in the Berkeley, in the Berkeley area and in a number of fine restaurants, but never really found a home. And then he took what many people would look at a step down in his career to come work for a pizza shop. Now, granted, it's a very nice pizza shop, but as soon as he came on that spark hit, I said, this is a guy who's got that. This is the guy who's going to run the business one day. And to this day, he runs the company. He runs the now day-to-day operations of, all the restaurants while I focus on growth and development. Yeah. And so you identified that people have to show their loyalty to you. They have to feel like they belong, that they're a part of the family. Uh, and then the next variable you said was a uh, growth uh, opportunity for growth. And you create that opportunity for growth. Is that right? Is that what I heard? Um, I don't know if I, I refer to exactly as that, but I mean, <clears throat> we as a company, are committed to our employees to create opportunities for growth, whether they want to seize the gap and fill that hole is up to them. And so I guess if we're talking on the same thread here, that's, that's something that as a community, as a company, that's what I go back to my initial statement with a, a ship in the Harbor quote is that it's my job to sail the ship. It's my job to create these opportunities and to allow the company to grow and expand. And it's up to these employees to come and fill the gaps and, and you know, improve their own lives livelihood improve their careers so you're a facilitator of opportunity oh 100 growth and development is really all i focus on high level operations high level data and new opportunities um that's it so how are you identifying i mean you mentioned your gut um any other things you're doing any other var- variables that we need to consider when trying to set people on these paths and make sure that they're on a path that they're happy with i mean are you opening up communication like how do you know that things are going well well, you know, this is, you're holding the mirror up for me right now, which is important. At a personnel level, at the employee level, in the restaurants, Susanna, our partner in 1100 Group, our CPO, handles that. And she conveys it with direct communication. She's not afraid to get down, you know, 
go eye to eye with somebody and really find out how they're feeling and what their pros and cons are working for the company are. Now at my level, I have, you know, I've got a few people that work directly for me and I'll be honest, I probably don't do a good enough job at actually getting down eye to eye with them and making sure that they're happy and that their needs are met and that they feel challenged and yet hopeful about the company's success. Um, and that's a great thing that I'm going to take away from this podcast today, Eric, is to go back. We have a, coincidentally, our uh, annual dinner is tomorrow night for the 1100 group. I bring everybody out to dinner, hand out, you know, play Santa a little bit and hand out some gifts. And uh, it's a good opportunity for me to get down there and connect at that level. Beautiful. Um, so I've been kind of steering the conversation up to this point. Uh but there's a part of me that just wants to break the chains and let you go free because I can tell that you're just packed with incredible advice and knowledge, but I want you to determine the fate of today's conversation going forward. So what do you want to talk about? What hasn't been discussed that's near and dear to your heart that you know will just add value to the listeners? Well, you know, for me, what's, what's really, really ringing true to me is my 2018. I'm going to say it's the end of the year, right? Everyone has their resolutions per se. And everyone has their, you know, their, their needs they want met for 2019. And really, I like to talk about what happened in 2018 for us and for me, for us as a company and for me personally, where we, we hit our first real failure as a company. Um, we closed down a restaurant, which is something I never thought we'd have to do. We went, uh, we had a restaurant go out of business. And on top of that, we took a, speculative risk and we took a, a dive into a different industry <clears throat> that wasn't construction that wasn't restaurants that we knew nothing about and you know we were too what speculative industry? We got ahead of ourselves that was the cannabis industry okay and what happened there is this the business that you had to shut down or is that you close the business and you open no, to another we close the restaurant and we essentially <clears throat> have uh, failed to execute in the cannabis space as we thought we would okay let's start uh, with the, the restaurant, restaurant. What, yeah, what happened no with the restaurant why'd you fail so the first restaurant I told you about that didn't last, we still had the lease there. And so what I did when that restaurant failed, I took over that partnership with my current partner, John, and we decided we were going to take the space and the lease and we were going to flip it into something else. And we flipped it into a, just a local, this is a, this is a small neighborhood restaurant. It's a much smaller scale than the other stuff we do. It doesn't make the pain any less, but we decided we were going to put in a Mexican restaurant and we were going to do a community restaurant. It was the rest, Mexican restaurant you grew up with. I wanted to go back. Everyone in, in the Bay Area here in California is doing fancy Mexican. Um, matter of fact, I'm building one in, in Sacramento right now at the Doco Arena called Polanco. It'll be open in June. That it's going to be very high-level, chef-driven Mexican. But that's what everyone is doing in the Bay Area. And so we wanted to do something a little different. So we took this little community space, a nice little neighborhood in Albany, California, and said we're going to put the Mexican food we grew up with in it. So we went back to the old combination plates, you know, chili relleno and tamale and enchiladas. Uh, we had a nice space. We had a great bar program. And at the end, we did not do our research. We tried to put a, we put a, tried to put a, a square peg in a round hole. We realized that there are way too many restaurants on that block. And even though we were operating at a high level, the most, the, the highest level of gross sales we would ever achieve there would be about 1.1 million. And at that rate, we'd be break even at best. With the amount of overhead we have with a management company, the lease rate that we had, the occupancy all in, it just wasn't a good fit. And we should have known, done that math ahead of time. We should not, we should have walked on the lease. We should have find, found a different tenant and not taken another chance and, and waste another year. So that's the restaurant. 
And so, that one's over and done, and it is what it is. So you identified that you didn't do the homework, you didn't do the market research, uh, that you would never be able to have done the volume in that space to justify the space, if I heard that correctly. That's exactly right. And That's exactly right. Any other things that you identified that you could have done differently if you would have done anything? I mean, I know the space was something that you inherited from a previous decision, which makes it rough. But knowing what you know, anything else that you can identify that made it rough, more rough? No, the food, you know, I think we didn't, we tried to shoestring it. Like we tried to do it without a true general manager because we knew that the sales weren't going to be high enough. We thought we'd save that. So we thought the management group would, you know, remote manage it. And we put in a couple leads to run the program, which probably wasn't uh, an oversight on our part. Um, we brought in a chef and this is a true story on day one of opening, the chef showed up drunk off his ass, Eric. I mean, just, Nerves, maybe? <laughs> no, just hammered drunk. Oh, man. I mean, Jesus. Drunk. Day one. I mean, this is day one. He shows up and he's drunk. And I sent him home and that was a horrible first day. Oh, man. And then we let him come back. We should have pulled the plug right then. We should have just closed up. We should have just shuttered it for another week. It was a soft opening anyways. And we should just shuttered it a week. We should have hired another chef, had him come in and, and tune the menu up a little bit and do his own thing. Uh, but instead we suffered that guy for three to four months. Yeah. I think that's a huge, huge lesson in itself is that you don't get first impressions back and you need to nail it as I mean, day one, day two, day three might be a little rocky. Obviously there's going to be some hiccups here and there, but you've got to try to get it as close to perfect as possible from day one, because people don't give you too many shots. Well, especially when you're the second iteration of the space, and everyone in the community knows it's the same ownership. They've already seen you fail once. Mm. And so even though that wasn't our direct concept, we didn't develop that concept or operate it. They're still related it to us. Um, it's common ownership in some form or another. So um, not only they, yeah, they were our toughest critics for sure. Those first ones coming in day one, day two, day three, and we were not performing. Um, our chef was abysmal. And so we should have, we, you know, we should have followed our instinct. I should have shuttered it. And instead, I tried to give this guy a, a chance, and I tried to have some sympathy for him and empathy, and um, I should have just scanned him and, and moved on. Um, yeah, so, we, so that was a failure for us. That was a it was a hard, a lot of sleepless nights. I've never, I hate failure. I'm, a, I'm an athlete at heart. I love to win. I love to compete. I love to do well by myself and by others. And so, that was really, really hard, hard to hard to handle. Yeah, and you also identified. Uh, well, first, let me say. Even the most successful restaurateurs in the world don't knock every concept out of the park. Uh, I mean, if you're you're batting what uh, like seven hundred right now, which is yeah. pretty good uh, considering all things. So you also identified the the you made the attempt into the cannabis industry. Exactly what did that model look like? What were you trying to do? Well, that model came about three years ago or so uh, with some investment into that that industry just as you know, simple investment and maybe some business consultation being on the board of directors, but mostly just capital investment. And these other operators were going to, who were industry, they were cannabis industry professionals had been doing it on an illicit or a legal level as well as a medicinal level in California for years. And they were going to run the business and you know, we were going to invest some capital and give some oversight. And it became very evident very quickly uh, within a year that these guys didn't know what the hell they were doing. They may know weed, but they didn't know how to run a business and it was out of control. And so I had to step in and start to run the business. 
and it sacrificed my home life. It sacrificed the restaurants, sacrificed a lot. Um, I was, you know, trying to, trying to run a big company in the cannabis space of which I have no interest in cannabis. I'm not a cannabis smoker. Um, I knew nothing about the industry and it didn't apply the same business knowledge that I had, I had, you know, that I've, I've brought on. And so we were in a speculative space. We were in a very volatile space and we're in an industry that we have no business being in. And we should have cut ties and walked at the beginning of 2018. But instead we went deeper with another million dollar investment. Oh. And um, here we are with nothing to show for at the end of 2018. Oh man. So what are the key takeaways? If you could summarize know what you know and understand what you don't know or try to try to realize there's a lot you don't know and if you're you know you're trying to go fishing in waters you've never been fishing in before you're probably not going to catch a fish but if you're fishing in the creek behind your house you know where all the honey holes are you're going to pull out the big lunker mm. and so that's just that's really what i'm focused on in 2019 and moving forward and i would take the money back in a minute a million dollars is a lot of money but i don't know if i'd take back the experience and the life lesson that 2018 taught us with the two failures it is got us into a real good place as a company where we are understanding our risks. We're really taking a 360 bird's eye view of everything that's going on with the investment, every bit of the opportunity before we move forward. We're being very careful. We're building a restaurant right now in, in Portland, Oregon, in the Pearl District. Uh, that'll be our first out-of-state concept, and we're very excited about that. But our investment team, some of the people we use for investments in some of the other restaurants – they want a sweet deal because it's a higher risk for them out of state. So we've got to really come back and look at this and make sure that we don't get ourselves into a position that is not opportunistic for us just to get the deal done. We'd rather walk away than have a bad deal happen. Yeah. And just lessons like that. And I'm loving this conversation. One more thing I'm curious about, and then we can start to wrap up the free flowing portion of the, of the chat. Uh, this construction element of your business, is that under the same, umbrella as 1100 group or is that separate no everything is under the 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 company gs holdings my partner's last name is ghoul my last name is seabury we have a holding company called gs holdings even the 1100 group is under that umbrella so everything is under there and anything i do um the type of loyalty that i have and i know my partner's the same for example my partner has nothing to do with the construction company but yet he's it's under his partnership he has ownership in that company um that's how that's how close we are as partners um, we take steps together. We don't take steps separately. So um, the construction company is interesting. It came about because I was building a restaurant in Alameda um, 2017 and I couldn't find a general contractor and a general contractor came and put a bid in and the bid they put in was what we call fuck you money. Meaning <laughs> that the bid was two X of what it should have been. Um, and it was two X cause it was like, fuck you. You want the job. You want us to do it. We're the only contractor that can do it. And we're going to charge you double what it should cost. And so I found a loophole and well, not a loophole. It's, it's, it's an actual, an element of the building code that allows you as an owner to act as your own general contractor, even if you don't have a license. And so I utilized that and we built a great restaurant. We built it beautifully and I, I developed a great team. And so we went and got a general contractor's license, gave some equities, some key players. And here we are and uh, we build our own restaurants now. It's great. So, I mean, I don't like th this is kind of a foreign area to me. I'll be honest. So if I'm stumbling over my words, it's because I really have no clue what I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah. to be completely frank. But I I'm curious. Uh, a lot of people in this industry do bootstrap and they do a lot of it 
uh, you know, they, they keep the, the, the dollar bills as low as possible. Right. And that's how they are able to survive by just keeping their overhead low and doing the work themselves. But if you're, if you're somebody who really loves building out restaurants and that's your it factor, that's your lane. And you have partners that are really good at operating, uh, the restaurants themselves. Why not create that portion of the big machine where, if you're opening a lot of restaurants, why not keep it in house and why not have a holdings company where you have all these different businesses? You can also serve other businesses. Why not? If you're good at it, right? To keep that cash flow going, but also you can get premium uh, deals on your own build outs, which I seem really interesting. Maybe that didn't come out as bad as I thought it would, but I mean, is that no, part you, of the angle? You said it, yeah, it's exactly you're, you just, you're tracing my thought process right here. And that's exactly it. You know, keep it in house. It's, the savings is uh, we can build a restaurant for half the cost. Mm. I said we build it for half the cost. And you, um, you grew up labor. in the, the, the construction industry. I mean, this is yeah, kind of like I first nature. Well. Yeah, I, exactly. It's one of the things I know it's the Creek in my backyard. So that's an easy one for me. And that's why it makes sense. And that's why we pursue that. And we do build other restaurants. I'm bidding a, a new restaurant build out here uh, in, in the East Bay area in, in California here for another, a, a new restaurant tour. So we don't we do more than just our own. We keep the crew busy year round. But it's also that very that symbiotic that that not me versus you, but us mentality of we're in this together as business owners in our community. And why not support other restaurants? Why not be a uh, 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 like woven into the hospitality within a community? Uh, I mean, I think the deeper you go, the more the stronger those connections are. And if, if, you, if you're doing business with other restaurant operators, it's only going to serve you in the long run. You're going to create more opportunities, more collaboratives. Agreed. You're going to meet new people. You're going to meet new architects. You're going to meet different operators. Maybe you'll meet the next general manager that doesn't like working where he's working in a year, but he remembers you built that restaurant and knows you're in the restaurant business. And now he becomes or she becomes one of your best employees down the road. It's just, it's a big network. And I agree that the more times you can kind of weave in and out of that fabric, the better. Um, yeah, it's a great opportunity for that. Beautiful. So one more question. Now we're going to go to the speed round, but I'm really, uh-huh. um, I've been sitting on this one. Uh, so when I was doing my research, um, I'll just read this quote. Uh, this came from the website uh, regarding you. Uh, ben came up through the ranks of the restaurant world during the tough old days where wages were low and the days were long. Tempers and egos were common, and Ben will always remember those tough years as the precipices. Am I saying that right? Precipices of change. Uh, precipice. Precipice. Yes. No, no, no. Precipice I have to read. Change. I, I, uh, I didn't write that. So yeah. let me ask you. This is I just that's just setting up the question. <laughs> the question is, what is the precipice? The precipice. Wow, I cannot talk right now. The precipice. Am I saying that right? I don't know. Let me is log it, on to my website and find out. I forget words. the quote. I'm doing my best. <laughs> uh, so uh, basically, it's maybe the catalyst of change. You you want the 1100 group to to be the the spearhead of change. So what is the change you? want to see what is meant by that what were you trying to communicate when that was written well i didn't write this i'm reading it right now it's great i haven't read it in a long time and i don't have four dogs anymore i have three dogs now but uh, (laughs) i should update it you know Let's let's skip this. Really, the most important thing, I think what was trying to be conveyed by that quote and by that kind of bio, by what was trying to be conveyed by that bio is that we want to make sure that we are 
doing something special. And that goes down to our units that we have. The pizzerias are very special, Eric. I want you to try them and I hope you do get to one day. They're very special. And I want to make sure that I change the restaurant world for the better. I mean, in the Bay Area, in, in, in Northern California here, we've had so much, so much volatility with sexual harassment and with unfair hiring practices, unfair work or unsafe work environments, et cetera. And really for us to, to be able to create that morally sound, wonderful restaurant and rent, wonderful company experience is so important. And I think that's probably what I was trying to get to or what they're trying to get to in that quote. Every time we move in our restaurant and our management groups, it's how can we, how can we change? What can we do better? What, and I'm not talking about just, can I put a different cheese on the pizza that's going to save me a half a percent on my cost of goods. I'm talking about what can we do better as a company morally? What can, how we can take better care of our customers? How can we take better care of our employees? How can we take better care of ourselves? Make sure that we have work-life balance, stuff like that. When I say in that quote, the bad old days, the long hours, I'm not joking. I used to work 80, 85 hours a week. Um, and that's, that's, that's probably an average week. There's been weeks where it's seven days, 20 hours a week or 20 hours a day when I'm building restaurants. And that needs to change. And that has to be the change. And we don't stress our people like that. And that's, uh, I think that's probably what I'm, I would stand upon in that quote. Awesome. I love it. This conversation has been great. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel and I can tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grain Junction Subs in the Craft Cave to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Revel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash unstoppable. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Uh, transparency and active leadership would be the two that I pick out there. Awesome. What is your biggest weakness? 
I overextend myself and I give way too much time to meaningless distractions. How are you combating that weakness? Ooh, <laughs> um, meditation is a big one every morning. Um, it's important to clear that head and make sure that I have my priorities straight. So I'd say meditation is my, my biggest, uh, my biggest tool in that chest. What's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? You know, I hire for my gut. I always have. And that's, I think I look for that spark that we talked about earlier, that kind of subtle communication that kind of goes to that base instinct level. What is your biggest challenge today? My biggest challenge today is taking calculated risks, but still, well, actually my biggest challenge today is, is, is being able to take risks and not think twice about it because a year ago I was on, I was able to roll the dice and not think twice, but after 2018's failures, I have to really think twice about it. So that's my biggest challenge today is not second guessing myself. And how are you dealing with that challenge? Man, meditation. I keep going back to that. I mean, <laughs> well, really, it's clearing the head and making sure that I'm seeing through all of the chaff, you know, just seeing through all the floats to to get down to the blue water. I think when it comes down to it, meditation is about gaining clarity, mindfulness, and also intention. Uh, Agreed. And, right? Agreed. So when you live more intentionally, you do everything with precision, that's a calculated risk, right? You're, you're, you're doing it the work. You're, you're, you're not just going off the cup and rolling the dice. But I, I don't need to add any more to that. <laughs> no, you're uh, right on. Yeah. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Man, so many. You know, I'm going to go with expect trouble. Um, the one thing I always try to teach my team at all levels is expect the worst, expect trouble. Make sure you have contingencies in place. I want plan B's, plan C's, plan D's. Mm. I want you to know what's going to go wrong, and I want to know how you're going to respond to it. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach? So this is something that's common within your four walls, but not common within the industry. Uh, uniqueness. I mean, the amount of diversity that we have doesn't come from how we hire, but it comes from the freedom that we allow our staff to be who they are. They need to be unique, and they need to be genuine. And we'll love them for that. And they hope the customers love them as well for that. I dig it. And what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Oh, there's two for sure. Um, dang. I mean, the number one is Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. If you have anybody in this industry needs to read that so they understand at least what it's like to be a cook and especially to be a cook in this industry surrounded by debauchery, debauchery and drugs and alcohol and what it takes to overcome all that stuff to be a success. But the, that's the back of the house book. The front of the house book is uh, I'd pick principles by Ray Dalio. And what was the big, that's the first time mentioned, I think on the show principles by Ray Dalio. You said Ray Dalio, D A L I O. Um, it's, it, it's a must read for any, I think any businessman in general, but and what was the big lesson from that book? Develop your core principles and don't ever deviate from them. And that's really, I mean, that's what I'm focused on in 2019, Eric, is just I want to make sure that I've got the right principles in place. And you have these parameters set. And if it doesn't fit within the parameters, the answer is no. And don't be afraid to say no. Um, and you got to, you have to develop these principles. They have to be, they have to have intent behind them. They have to be very well thought out. And then once they're in place, you don't deviate. 
Beautiful. Uh, what is one thing you believe restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Ooh, um, well, that's hard. I think that on a personal level, restaurateurs don't spend enough time not working. And I think in the workplace, restaurateurs don't learn the names of their low-level employees or their, their, their I guess, you know, dishwashers, busboys, whatever you call it, entry-level employees. Uh, and discover their personalities, too. Again, really in, in investing into that, treating people as people, not treating these people as tools. Man, uh, I could I could do a little spin off that, but I, I'll choose not to to keep this interview under the agreed upon time. Uh, what is one technology you've adopted within your four walls that has had a huge influence on operations? I think going to cloud-based POS has been one of my favorite additions and one of our uh, one of the most streamlined additions we've done. You know, we got rid of the old brick and mortar, I guess, or the in-place desktop. POS systems, you know, the micros and the alohas of the world, and went to uh, Revel, which is a cloud-based iPad, uh, iPad-based POS system. And the technology is great and the versatility of it, being able to have, you know, everything from retinals, I mean, fingerprint scanners and face ID for clocking in and clocking out to uh, being able to update the POS from my phone when I'm traveling. If I want to, you know, if I realize there's a menu item wrong and I notice it, I can log on and fix it. Um, being able to pull data at the drop of a hat from my phone. Um, it's just really, really been a big ad for our entire company. It is expensive and very well worth it uh, on all aspects to implement Revel into our company. So I'm curious, why, what was it that made you get away from the old platforms, the Alohas of the world? I don't know what you were using, but what was the the – the nail in the coffin for you with the older. Well, the biggest one for us is that it did not integrate. So we're pizza and pizza is the number one delivered food in the country. So we do about 40% of our business out the door and the old dinosaurs did not integrate with these new delivery partners like caviar, Postmates, DoorDash, Amazon, Uber, Grubhub, you name it. You had to manually enter in the data. So the order would come across on an iPad from caviar, from a, say from DoorDash and you would have to have somebody manually enter that ticket or that iPad screen into the dinosaur POS. And the amount of errors and the speed and the labor ad that became of that was just asinine. And so by using Revel, they have a third party that integrates those two platforms. And essentially I'm down to one iPad right now. An order comes in, it shows up, the person hits accept and it automatically populates it into our Revel POS system which then automatically populates it to the printer, which then automatically populates it to the sticker printer for the box. And the labor ad alone is, is, is incredible. Yeah. Revel is a current sponsor. Great platform. Have nothing but good things to say about them. I think one of the reasons why I am a fan of Revel is because of how malleable it is and you can start bare bones as simple as you need it to be and as you scale as a business as you start getting more cash flow you can start plugging in other assets to the platform and really make your business as robust as you need it to be which whatever makes sense for you at that time and it's an open platform unlike some of the other uh, POS companies out there I know that that you can choose multiple processors which if that's important to you that's something to consider too it is. And I agree. It's a, it's a canvas and that's why we liked it. And that's why we chose it over its competition. Beautiful. This is the last and question. Great, great support. Great support. Which they, is, they which is very off. important as well. Thank you for mentioning that. So this is the last question. It's a doozy. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for it? 
Yeah, yeah, of course. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Mm. Be kind, for sure. Just be kind. Treat people like people. Um, they're not tools. That's the biggest one. Number one. Second one would number one. Number two would be whatever you do, make sure you do it the best you can do it. Be number one. And number uh, three. Don't do any don't do anything half ask. And number three. I mean, quit asking me questions about work because well, I'm spending time with my family. I mean, really. <laughs> yes. Awesome. <laughs> Great stuff today, Ben. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You were amazing. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody else. So who's one person you admire in this industry and you believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? Hmm. Well, you know, I would give you Michael Lind. I think that he is an excellent mentor and he was the co-founder of Kara's cupcakes that I worked for many, many years ago. Um, a great human being, incredibly intelligent, uh, old airplane pilot. So you'll have a lot in common with him. I think Michael we do Lind a, from Kara's Cupcakes. I think I would love to do a deep dive conversation about how those two industries cross and how the, the aviation oh. industry has made him a better <laughs> he person. Will be deep, fun. He'll go very, very deep with you. He'll bring out a checklist and then go over that checklist about what you're talking about. Awesome. Yes. Great stuff. And uh, <laughs> how can we connect with you if we have any questions, uh, if you want to maybe come join your team or any other reason, what's the best way to connect? Just check us out on our website, the management group, 1100group.com, 1100group.com. Beautiful. And I believe this is episode 583. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 583, and you'll find a link to everything that we discussed, uh, as well as how to connect with Ben over there. Again, Ben Seabury, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Cheers. All right. Chalk it up. Another episode in the back here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Again, Ben Seabury, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share your knowledge. This was a great conversation. I think the big takeaway for to me or for me in today's conversation was uh, just the idea of how important it is to respect your people and to treat them like an equal like a person and not a tool, right? That's those are Ben's words. And, you know, I think you'll find that if you really do exist to serve others, to exist, to make opportunity for your people and to not make it about me and how successful I can be, but how successful we can be, uh, that is really where the magic starts to happen. And I think Ben is a living example of that. Uh, also some really great advice about just getting out there and going to work for the best and treating your, your early jobs, like your MBA, go work for the people that are the best at what they do. Ask questions, be inquisitive, hustle for them, treat it like you own it. And someday you will, you will have the opportunity to own it. And actually on that note, uh, a, a lesson on how not to behave uh, when you are on the come up and your people are, giving you the opportunity to treat it like you own it. Hey, guess what? You still don't own it. And uh, you need to remember that they're giving you so much knowledge. They're giving you experience that you can use later in life and to be patient that your time will come. Don't let that ego get the best of you. And I think Ben learned the hard way and uh, learn from these failures, learn from these lessons. So you don't make the same mistakes and burn bridges in your life. So 
With that said, like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric, at restaurantunstoppable.com. Keep those five-star reviews coming. They help so much. Please sign up for my email list. i got to start building that thing. i got to start building my community, and that's going to be my direct line to communicate with you, to, to let you guys know what's coming, to let you know what's going through my mind, to let you guys know how uh, the, the brand of Restaurant Unstoppable is evolving, how the mission is evolving. It all happens right there on the email list. Come join the community. And then uh, lastly, please Support this mission by sharing it with everybody and anybody you know that is aspiring to be great in this industry. You are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And at Restaurant Unstoppable, you can surround yourself with the best. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for hanging around this long. Until next time, peace out.